So it's really great, it's lovely to be here. Um, I've been hearing a little bit about Foundation Church for a while, so it's lovely to visit. Um, I think, I was trying to think about when I first met you guys, and met Marion, might have been at Global Leadership Summit, do you remember maybe? Quite a few years ago, in Bangor, yeah. Mm -hmm. so, so it's really lovely um, to be with you guys and to see what you're doing. I've really enjoyed even just the, the worshiping God with you already. Um, so I'm wondering how many of you have heard of International Justice Mission, apart from the fact that we were coming, <laughs> or I was coming today. Yep, pretty much every, pretty much everybody, not every, quite everybody. Well, um, hopefully I'll not be telling you lots of things you already know. Um, if I do, feel free to come up and ask me other questions afterwards. I'm very happy to chat, um, chat and uh, talk further. But I, first of all, I want us to have a little think about the impossible. Uh, what do you think of whenever I say that? Do you, can you think of a situation that you're facing or you have faced or somebody you know is facing that just seems impossible? For me, impossible was probably labor. <laughs> Seemed pretty impossible. How on earth was that going to work? and was pretty terrifying. Um, and all the evidence, of course, suggests that it does work because lots of people around me had babies and it seemed to, you know, go relatively smoothly, etc. But I still felt terrified. It still felt like an impossible situation. And um, of course it wasn't, but that's how it felt. That's how it seemed. Um, whenever I started to work for IJM, we had, um, we had no office here. We really had maybe a handful of supporters but not very many people knew anything about International Justice Mission. And again, to me, when I sat down in my study uh, on the 5th of September, I think it was, in 2011, with a computer in front of me, and thought, how am I going to do this? It also seemed slightly like an impossible situation. And there were lots of organisations that uh, were talking you know, about what they were doing in Northern Ireland. And uh, I thought, one more. How am I ever going to uh, get the word out there? How am I ever going to raise the profile? It seemed kind of impossible. But it might actually be maybe a more painful situation that you're thinking about. Illness um, can seem like a pretty impossible thing. But the point is we all face these sorts of situations and we react in different ways. Some of us might run a mile from an impossible situation. Why set ourselves up to fail? What's the point in that? and so we just turn in the opposite direction. Some of us don't like to be told that we can't do something or we don't like that feeling. Our pride insists that we forge ahead and at all costs we will be successful. And whenever I was 18, I spent a year in Africa and uh, we, did, we went skydiving as part of it. And uh, I hate to be afraid, I was absolutely terrified. And because I was so afraid the first time, I insisted on doing it the second time because I didn't want to be afraid. When I think about it now, my hands do start to sweat. I can pretty much guarantee I will never do it again. I was young and foolish. But um, yes, some of us have that sense. We don't like to be defeated by something, and so we will keep going. For some of us, the impossible just asks, causes us to ask, why? Why am I facing this? What does this mean? Or maybe why would God allow this? We can become confused. At Luke 18, 27, uh, in that verse, Jesus says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. 
And that's what we're going to consider tonight um, or this evening is something that we are facing in IJM, uh, and not just us, but other organizations, other people, that seems impossible, but yet we are trusting God to do the impossible in the midst of it. And that situation is uh, the reality of slavery in our world because it is very real. And I imagine you've probably heard lots of things about slavery um, and, and human trafficking. It's more and more on the news uh, these days. We do tend to hear stories. Um, we hear things about maybe trafficking rings that have happened in England. We even hear stories about people who have been held in different industries in Northern Ireland, things like maybe the agricultural industry, for example. So I know we've been hearing these stories. And so hopefully we're starting to get a sense that this problem is very real and present. Um, there've just been, there's just been a new report released actually in the past week or two uh, that has brought us a new figure. Um, and this is significant because there's a couple of organizations which are coming together and saying we both agree on this figure. And that figure for slavery is, so this is slightly out of date actually, is 40.1 million slaves today. And of course, it's quite difficult. It's a hidden problem, that's the nature of it. And so it can be tricky, obviously, to get to that. But over the past, I think, in recent years, um, there's an organization called the Walk Free Foundation, which has been doing a lot of work to put together this figure. And uh, governments are more aware. And so the information that we're getting does seem to be slightly more accurate. There are more um, statistics up there. One in four slaves are children. And by the time uh, we have finished this service, I would say, so from when we started to when we'll finish up, um, probably about 60 children at least will have been sold in that time, which is pretty hard for us to believe. Over 4 million in the global sex trafficking industry, and as you can see, it generates a lot of money. That's kind of one of the biggest driving factors, really, is money. You want to make money and you don't want to risk too much why not buy and sell people because for a long time people have got away with it and so it seems it can seem pretty impossible it takes many forms as you know and um, so we might have uh, it could be the teenage girl who's held captive in the brothel um, abused by uh, lots of men every day it can be the 70-year-old grandmother who is carrying huge loads of bricks on her head, having spent her whole entire life enslaved in a brick kiln in India, for example. It could be a whole family who are employed in a cotton factory, and they're all working together, often enmeshed there through debt, and through some kind of false debt, often. It could be children from anything from a year old to young teenagers who are put in front of cameras in the Philippines and forced to perform various acts for people all around the world. So there are different forms, um, which I'm sure you've heard of. Maybe even domestic servitude people who are forced to become slaves in homes. Um, but the situation becomes slavery because the passport is taken or uh, there's deceit or there's violence or there's um, forced coercion in different ways. The reality of slavery is pretty stark. Sometimes whenever we talk about forced labor slavery, so people who are working in some uh, various scenarios, whether it's 
um, in the fishing industry, whether it's in a brick kiln, whatever it is, sometimes people say to me, but at least they've got a job, they've got a place to stay. So in some ways it's better than not, right? Wrong, because often what gets people into that situation of slavery is some kind of deceit, often some kind of false debt, um, or it could be a real debt, but the debt then is uh, uh, increased many-fold by uh, fake interest rates and that kind of thing. But what often keeps people enslaved is violence and fear, often. And so people are at great risk of uh, physical harm and maybe being abused by their captors and um, maybe being denied their basic, the basic needs like food. And so it's not better. It's definitely not better than not being there at all. Let's think about uh, one person in particular. So this is Gideon. He's Ghanaian. Um, he, uh, this is a picture uh, on Lake Volta in Ghana. I think, have you, have, did you, have you been to Ghana? Did you go? Yeah. Um, were you there too, Marion? Yeah. yeah. So, so this is Lake Volta. It is an absolutely massive lake and the largest man-made reservoir actually in the world. It's over 600 miles wide. So forget Loch Ness. Uh, so it's kind of hard to get our heads around, I think, how vast this is. Um, apparently there are nearly 50,000 children actually who work on the lake in the fishing industry. Now, some of those children will work with their families um, and alongside maybe brothers, uncles, uh, fathers. Um, but in 2013, a small team of our investigators from International Justice Mission traveled to the lake and they went undercover on the lake and did some research. We, they met hundreds of boys over a couple of week period. And what they, they were pretty shocked. We sent people there who have worked for us for a long time in, uh, in other issues like sexual exploitation. But they said this was the hardest job they'd ever actually done, which, is, which might surprise us. It was the most jarring, the most shocking thing they'd ever seen. So they met hundreds of boys, um, boys who should have been in primary school, some girls, but mostly boys, and many as young as four years old, working on the lake, sent out on boats. Remember this place, this lake is massive, for potentially weeks at a time, working 12 hour plus days. Um, no protection from the elements, clothing not really suitable. Often, a lot of the time, most of the time, they can't actually swim, um, but they are forced to dive down deep into the water to untangle nets and things. Um, and so, actually, a lot of the, the boys that we met had a friend or somebody they knew who had drowned on the lake at some point. Um, and so there was a lot of fear of that as well. There lots of thick scars from um, motor accidents or even dangerous fish in the lake. Uh, hands really calloused and hard from the work that they're doing. They don't have enough food. Often food was, is actually used as um, a way of controlling them um, and so they can't escape. But actually at the same time as being undernourished, they also have overdeveloped muscles for their age because of the hard work that they're always that they're doing. A lot of the boys are under 12 years old and actually, once they get over this age, they can be discarded because they eat too much, really, and cost too much to keep on. But then where do they go? If they don't even really know where their families are, where would they go? So we spoke to hundreds of boys, as I said, and we uh, estimated that and through that time that over, well over half of the boys that we met were in a situation of slavery. 
And so because of that research then, um, we decided we wanted to do something about that problem. And so then we set up an office in Ghana to tackle this problem. Um, and so we've been working hard there to try and deal with it, um, to try and do our investigations, um, to try and work alongside the police and the government. We always work alongside local authorities um, because we believe that they are best placed to tackle this. And so we want to help, encourage, equip, train anything that's required to ensure that these problems are addressed. So Gideon's story um, is just like many of the children that I have said. Um, he comes from a really poor family and that's often how the, the kids end up on the lake. And so they live in surrounding areas. They're from poor families and so choices are limited. Um, and so a fisherman or a middleman might go to the villages and say, well, you know, I know that you're really, um, you don't have very much um, and so we can help you. I'll give you some money and your son can come and work for us. And we'll pay him, he'll get to go to school, we'll feed him, and he'll learn a really useful trade. Um, and so, isn't that a great solution? And so it gives this sense of hope. Can you imagine in the middle of what is often seems like a very, um, a very uh, restricted life with very little choice to be given this opportunity for your child? And so you take it. And so that's what often happens, and that's what happened to Gideon. A distant relative came actually and promised him a good job. And so they were really excited. And actually his younger brother um, went with him too and they wanted to start this new life. But of course, this promise, this hope is false. It's a trick and a trap. And uh, they're forced then basically enslaved on the lake. And from that moment when they arrived on Lake Volta, they weren't able to leave again. He was there for about five years and not once did he ever receive any pay for the work that he did, which I think is hard to believe. And so you might then say to me, okay, but at some stage he must realize something's amiss. Why does he not just leave? But it's often that fear factor and the controlling factors that slave owners use, whether that's violence, whether that's controlling through food, etc. Choices are taken away. And I think let's imagine that. Apparently, we all make between eight and 10,000 choices every day, which is kind of hard to believe, but apparently it's true. So from the tiniest thing, like I'm gonna hit the snooze button on my alarm in the morning, to what I'm gonna eat or what I'm gonna do with the rest of my life, for example, our choices are range from tiny to big life-altering ones, and we don't even realize a lot of the time that we're making them. But imagine if that ability to choose was taken away from you, to choose when to get up, to choose what job to do, to choose your future, to choose what to eat, all of those things taken away. Gideon should have been in school, but instead he's trapped on the lake. The horrors of slavery are very real and are awful. So his situation seems impossible. And slavery on this lake has been going on for generations. And it's supported by people who have a lot of power and influence. <coughs> Businessmen, politicians. Um, the boys are young, with very little power, and impoverished. It seems impossible. So what on earth, what is our response? What on earth are we thinking about this for, sitting here in a church in East Belfast? This is impossible. So we read earlier the scripture that nothing is impossible with God. 
or the impossible is possible with God. And I loved your reminder also that we also uh, here need to be restored and need to be free and need to be rescued. And I think it's really good as we think about God doing the impossible to remember that he has already done the impossible through Christ. Um, Of course, our situation was impossible for us, that we are born apart from God because of our sinful nature, which we, I, I imagine we can all see when we look inside our hearts, this tendency to self, this tendency to sin. And so we're apart from God, apart from a holy God. Nothing we can do can fix that situation. It is impossible for us. But God in his mercy has sent Christ. And once we accept that, we come into his family and we are restored, we're redeemed, we are forgiven. That is wonderful news. And so let's remember that to start with, that he has fixed this, provided a solution to our impossible problem. And then uh, Dave read to us as well this story from 1 Samuel 17. I know that it was a very long extract, but I wanted us to kind of get a feel for what was going on in that passage. Um, We may be really familiar with it, of course. Uh, David, this small, young shepherd boy who defeats this uh, huge, imposing, intimidating, violent, aggressive uh, giant of a man called Goliath. We've been hearing about it for a long time. And Goliath has become a term even in our vocabulary, which we use, uh, you know, about the, the big, the man, I guess, the, the big impossible. Um, and we start to use that task. We've taken it on board. We didn't read the very start of the chapter, which gives us a little bit more of a picture of Goliath himself. Let's see if I can find the, the description of him. A champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span, which is apparently over nine feet. So that's pretty imposing. A helmet of bronze, armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went before him and he stood in front of of Israel and he said, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we'll be your servants. But if I prevail, then you shall be our servants and serve us. Imposing, intimidating, aggressive. And of course, they're all absolutely terrified. It seems an impossible situation. They keep running away. Every time Goliath comes out to face the armies of Israel, they run. Nobody wants to face him. And it's, in, in some ways, this is a really great story because we, uh, we have a tendency, we want the underdog to win, don't we? Um, and so actually, it would make a great movie. It probably has, I imagine, at some stage. We want the little guy to triumph over the, over the giant. We want to believe that might is not always right. But more than just a good story, it's a really powerful example for us of how God, uh, how, how nothing is impossible with God or the, pos- or the impossible becomes possible. And so first of all, we see and it shows us that God is not intimidated by what seems impossible to us. He is not scared of giants. He takes on impossible tasks such as defeating the Philistine army when all predictions point to disaster. Nothing is too big, too terrible, or too massive a problem for the creator of the universe. God is working in the impossible places. I wonder if we believe that, that nothing is too big, too terrible, or too massive a problem, even in our own lives, 
Do we sometimes face situations where we feel that is true? And then we can see that God uses David to defeat this giant. He doesn't just send a lightning bolt from the sky to fix it. He sends this uh, young boy, basically. David is the unexpected hero. The youngest sibling, so he wasn't even old enough or, uh, I guess, strong enough to go along to be part of the army in the first place. He was not a soldier, so he was unskilled in that area, unqualified. His job was to look after the sheep all day, not exactly fighting in battle. But what makes him the man for the job when God calls him? Well, he's so willing and he is so believing in his God. He doesn't seem to have any moment of doubt throughout the whole chapter. He seems so confident that God will come through. And so God uh, is not distant from the plight of those on earth. He's not disconnected. He actually works using his people. So he's working in the impossible places and he's working through us. Do we believe that? Do we believe that we are here to be used by God, to be his hands and feet? Do we believe that we see, when we see a difficult situation, that actually maybe God wants to use us in that difficult situation? And what did David have to offer? What was it that were, that were in his hands? Small, uh, three smooth small stones and a slingshot. He had, those were what he already had. He actually refused the armor that, that would have been by all, you know, what we all would naturally think that's what he needed. But he refused it and he just took what he already had, stones and a slingshot. And he did have some experience with using those because he explains that he's actually used them against a lion and a bear. That seems to be his training, the lion and the bear. So he uses what he already has. God used his skills and his talents, unusual as they may have seemed in the situation to bring about what was one of the most unexpected victories of all time. So, what do we have in our hands, however inadequate they may seem for the task? But when trusted to God, what is impossible to man is made possible with God. So God is working in the impossible places. He is working through us. He is using what he has put in our hands. Let's think about this then in terms of the giant of slavery. That's how we've been talking about it in IJM recently, the giant of slavery. How do we slay the giant of slavery? Well, firstly, God is not intimidated or scared by this problem. It's so easy, I think, when we look at the news, when we read stories, to, to tend towards despair in our hearts, not even just about slavery, about generally about the state of the world. We can tend toward despair. It's so awful. It's so big. How could we ever see change? But God is not intimidated. He is not intimidated by this new statistic of 40 million people. That is not bigger than God. He's not intimidated by large numbers. And actually across the world, every week, we see people set free. Sometimes in ones and twos, two girls from uh, somewhere, a house in the Philippines where they have been uh, being put in front of a camera every day, or could be a whole families out of a brick kiln in India. Uh, we have had rescues in the past of over 500 people on the, at the one occasion who have been enslaved in a particular situation. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the scale of that? 
And so we are seeing it all the time because God is working in the impossible places. And again, just as God used David, he is inviting us into this fight. And when we enter the fight, we stand shoulder to shoulder to, with hundreds of thousands of people around the world. Lawyers, social workers, politicians, students, parents, children, teachers, uh, those who give generously, artists, prayers, storytellers, volunteers, business people, bakers, runners, fundraisers, all kinds of people who have entered this fight. And I do believe we all have a role to play. And I, often when I talk, people might say, but it's so far away. But yet our actions do impact on people all around the world. Before we leave our houses in the morning, our lives have uh, indirectly impacted lots of people through the choices that we make, what we eat, what we wear, all of that. And so we can't totally divorce ourselves from this situation. So I do believe there's a role for all of us to play. You may not be the person to go on the lake. I'm not that person, but we have a role to play. So God is working in the impossible places and he's working through us. And finally, just like David with his five stones, I think I said it wrong earlier, five stones, God has equipped every single one of us for a particular part. And it's about using what we already have. So sometimes I think when people listen again to me, they think, well, I need to become a lawyer. No. Or I need to be an investigator. No. We use what we already have. Um, I am a lawyer by trade, but I actually don't practice law for IJM. My job is to uh, tell stories, basically. Um, and I do believe, even though that is a small part, that it's important and we all have a role to play. So God is working in the impossible places, even somewhere like Lake Volta, which seems impossible to us. He's working through us and he's using what he's put in our hands. So what has he put in your hands? What is your slingshot? What are your stones? Our workplaces? being the person to bring, uh, to help our workplaces be more just places, drawing attention to slavery and supply chains, for example. Maybe it's our time. Maybe it's our willingness to pray. Maybe it's our income. Maybe it's our profession or our creativity. I was at, we had a prayer day as a whole team on Thursday, and we were led through the first half of that by a small group of actors and artists and dancers and they were leading us through our prayer time. Um, we had to do some things which, you know, might make some of us feel uncomfortable, like, you know, moving and acting and saying things, but it was good fun. I had to draw, so I had to Google how to draw a bird and copied it from Google because that was not my area of, my area of strength. But, um, but the point is that they uh, have been using those skills actually to go to India to work with some of our clients there and to help them through art therapy to um, move forward through some of the trauma that they've experienced. So I think that's so cool that they're using what they have, what they're already gifted and skilled in to be part of the fight. And what about Gideon and his impossible situation on Lake Volta? We're just going to watch a short video. I think I'm maybe behind in my slides here. So it's wonderful news that Gideon was rescued. He was one of the first um, boys that we met on the lake. Those investigators who went back in 2013, they met him then. And so we really were determined to help him. Um, it wasn't very straightforward, the rescue, though. Um, 
On the way to rescuing him, our staff were with the police. Um, so we had to get on the boat to travel to where he'd been. Uh, but the boat drivers drove our team in the wrong direction because they'd been paid actually by the traffickers to deceive them. But we were able to help him and were able to find him. But um, I think his brother still is out there actually and we're still working to find him. There have been some great rescues this year from on the lake, uh, 24 boys on one day in January and then another 40 um, at least a month or two ago. And so it's re we're seeing really great things um, and what's really exciting and, and hopeful about this situation is that we're finding that whenever we do rescue um, boys from the lake and obviously that's the start of, a, of a, a journey of healing and helping them maybe to go back home or get into education or whatever is required but actually with the right help and um, they they do seem to be able to recover uh, pretty quickly and uh, focus on the future which is which is a really positive thing. Um, we've got a great picture of him graduating actually recently, so I think that's really exciting. Um, that's from December 2016. So, and you can see on the certificate it's for masonry skills he was, he was uh, training in for a couple of years. So, so that's really exciting and I think we're so thankful, you know, to God for um, working in the lives of individuals because often we talk about these big numbers but obviously individuals are important to God and so to see transformation in one person's life is really exciting. So of course we would love to invite you to be part of this battle with us and we believe it's a fight that is really fiercely on God's heart, one that he's equipping us for and calling us to. Um, we know it's not going to be easy. In IJM, we really are determined uh, to fight this until all are free. When I first heard that phrase, I thought, oh, that's a bit uncomfortable for me because is it possible? Is it? Is, it not, is slavery not something that's going to be around for a long time? But let's pursue that goal of until all are free. Let's pursue it because we have seen that in different communities around the world. Actually, it is possible to see a massive reduction in the number of people exploited whenever it's tackled in the right way. Um, in uh, Cambodia recently, so for a long time we worked there on um, exploitation of, of miners in the brothels and, and bars in Phnom Penh and a few other major cities. Really, uh, you know, the kind of thing we would have seen on the news, you know, very young kids and people just out on the street for all to see and pretty well known what was going on there, pretty well documented. Um, and so we've been working there for a long time, um, over 15 years, working, uh, as I've said, rescuing, investigating, working with police, working with government, all of that. Um, working with other organisations too, of course. There are lots actually of Christian organisations in Phnom Penh involved in, that, in this fight in particular. And so a few years ago we wanted to do some research um, to see, well has it actually made an impact because we've been doing this for a long time. And what we found actually was a massive reduction in the number of children, particularly those under 16, now less than 1% available in the bars and brothels in Phnom Penh and other major cities. That's really exciting. That is something to praise God for. Um, now, it's not the end of the fight, of course, there, but we also believe that through working with the police, the government, um, and the court system, actually the whole system is stronger and able to tackle this. And traffickers know now 
that the risks for them are so much higher because people are going to prison for the crimes that they got away with for a long time. So things are changing. And so maybe pursuing this fight against slavery until all are free is not so impossible and crazy. Um, we are in IGEM uh, around the UK are really passionate, well IGEM around the world are really passionate about prayer and, and we um, have been thinking in our team in the UK about how we can uh, see, how we can play our part. And so we really want to see um, the biggest move of prayer for justice that the UK has ever seen, um, which again seems pretty, uh, pretty big goal, but um, over the summer we we're at lots of the different festivals um, in England and here, and thousands of people have signed up to pray with us, you know, for this, and so that's really exciting. And so I'd love for you to join us in prayer. Prayer's really a big deal in IJM, and we have lots of rhythms, spiritual rhythms, we call them. And so in the morning, I have my half an hour stillness time, so you should try this with your employer. Ask them if they'll pay you to pray for half an hour in the morning or read a book or uh, commune with God, it's, it, maybe they'll say yes, you never know. Uh, it'll make you more productive. Um, and then half an hour corporate prayer every afternoon as well. And then quarterly prayer days, annual days of solitude, etc. So there's all these rhythms because we really believe that uh, we need to be coming before God, preparing ourselves for this fight. And it's his fight. And we are not going to slay the giant of slavery unless God is in it and leading it. And so please, if you want to be a part of that, we would so love you to do that. Um, I've put little uh, leaflets on your chairs. So there is a page there about prayer and you can fill that in. And um, if you want to get our updates um, to be part of this, uh, they'll come in video form um, or just a few prayer points uh, by email if that's, if that's how you work. think about giving to the work that we're doing. We really wanna scale up what we're doing around the world and be able to um, work more in partnership and just see a real increase, I suppose, in the impact that we're having. Um, currently, IGM is helping to protect 21 million people around the world from slavery and from violence, um, which is really exciting, not just through rescuing individuals, but a lot of it is through working to strengthen justice systems. That's really, really important to us. Um, so please, if you want to, we'd love you to, to think about giving. Um, and I'd just love us all to consider what we have in our hands. Like, what is it that um, we have that we could use? And I remember a few years ago, I was contacted by a guy who, like, who's passionate about online gaming, was also a Christian. So he was part of Christian online gaming community. Who knew? Who knew it existed but it did and so they did like this big online um, gaming tournament competition and raised money for us and i just thought that was really cool that they used what they already were going to do anyway we're passionate about but did it for uh, something like this so consider what is in our hands and what is it that we could be praying for um, well we're about these impossible circumstances that we are facing individually that we maybe talked about near the start that God would break through but pray also for the giant of slavery to be defeated pray for our investigators around the world who are undercover in dark places seeing things that nobody should really ever have to see and um, pray for them pray for our clients people who have been rescued but have a long road to travel in terms of recovery and restoration of their whole lives Pray for them. Uh, pray for our lawyers that they face so many obstacles in the court systems. The court systems can be really slow in the communities we work in. Lots of delays. 
pray for them that they would have the strength to persevere and that the, those opposing us in the courts would say we are not going away and so they would um, they would work with us for example there's so many things I could ask you to pray for and so we've thought a lot about a lot of things there I'm going to finish up and um, we have considered uh, what it feels like to face something impossible we have considered how God um, actually the impossible becomes possible with him and how this massive problem of slavery whilst it seems intimidating and scary and impossible actually uh, can be tackled um, through through God working through us it is not intimidating and scary to him he is bigger than it and so I hope that that really encourages you as well as challenges us tonight and I really appreciate um, the invitation to come thank you and I appreciate your time and attention and um, I'm going to hand back to Dave now I believe and please do chat to me afterwards that would be great thank you so much